Good morning. Who needs introduction to the latter prophets that we started last week? And you should have picked up three handouts for today. This is big handout day. Introduction to the prophets. You guys need one? Anyone else? So last week we finished Daniel and started the minor prophets. Or the, well, it says latter prophets, but that's, you got to correct that. It should be minor. Anyone else? Calvin? You need one? So just mark out latter at the top and put minor. Even though they're really not minor, right? No. <laughs> well, in the, um, to the Jews, latter is everything after the historical books. So Isaiah forward. All right, let me pull up this beautiful slideshow that my lovely wife made. She said it was beautiful. She picks more girly colors than I do. And Haley when she used to make my slides. There we go. Lots of color. All right, three handouts for today. Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Did everybody get one of those? Right back there. Owen's going to uh, pass them around. Chris is going to pass them around. Right behind you, Chris. Who needs one? Raise your hand. Three copies today. So we're going to take three at a time. That's the only way we're going to finish by the end of the year or by December 13th. We have to be done on that day. So, And that's fine. Uh, these books are small, most of them. In fact, we're taking some of the larger ones today. Uh, Hosea and, and Zechariah, which we won't cover today, but those are the biggest. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. I do think, though, we need to finish a few slides on the Minor Prophets. As usual, you guys will have to remind me where we left off. The best note takers. We covered the major themes yet last week? Who remember seven whole days ago? That's where we need to start? Yeah, that's right. I finished here. So, okay, let me pray and then we'll pick up with this slide. Father, we come to you today to learn from Scripture, to uh, not do an in-depth Bible study right now, but just a survey to look at these books of the Bible, to see where this information might help us as we read our Bibles, as we maybe hear a Bible study taught or a sermon on these texts. And uh, just pray, Lord, that we would benefit from the Old Testament, that we would uh, not try to cut it out of our Bibles, as many have done, but that we would read it, love it, and see where it teaches us about you and uh, teaches us of the coming Messiah. So I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom as we do that. In the name of our Lord, amen. So four of the minor prophets are mentioned elsewhere, and we would expect that because these guys aren't just serving in a vacuum. They are serving the Lord. They are proclaiming the Lord's word in a time of trouble. Time of trouble being basically when First Kings starts and... Uh, we see that Jonah's mentioned by name in 2 Kings, that Micah's mentioned by name during the time of Jeremiah. Haggai and Zechariah are some really latter prophets, and they're near the end there in the Old Testament. Ezra, the time of Ezra, when they go back to rebuild the land, to rebuild the temple. And the Jews get lazy, they don't want to rebuild the temple, so Haggai and Zechariah have to, or the Lord through them, as to encourage them to get it done. Now, the other prophets are serving during times of the kings, Ezra and Nehemiah as well, but they're not mentioned in those books. We don't have a specific date. So one overall interpretive issue that we're going to come to is the day of the Lord. But that is the major theme, probably the number one most common major theme of all of the 12 minor prophets is this idea of the day of the Lord. And we're going to look at a couple of options on what it means. But it's, it's the day of God's wrath. It's the day of Yahweh's wrath. The, the God of Israel 
is going to bring wrath upon the earth. And so that's the day they're talking about. The second most common theme is the sin of Israel and Judah. Remember, Israel at this time is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. They're both going to get destroyed and taken away into captivity. The towns, the cities will be destroyed. Many of the people will be destroyed. Some of the people will be taken into captivity, first into Assyria, and then Judah will go into exile in Babylon. Why? Why were they punished like that? What was their sin? Number one is idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. You worship another god, you're going to be punished and punished eternally. Because Israel had committed to worshiping the one true God of the Bible, the one true God who spoke to them, who sent Moses, who spoke to Abraham. And they said they would do that when they left Egypt, and they didn't. Immediately they built the golden calf, and they were always trying to turn away from God to another God. Also, social injustices, these were mistreating people, stealing from the poor, taking a widow's land, killing, murdering, stoning when it wasn't according to the law like they did with Jesus. Sometimes people point to these in the Old Testament and say, look, as Christians, we ought to be focused on social justice. Look what happened to Israel. Well, we ought to care about others. We ought to care about the poor. We ought to care about the widow. This here, though, is speaking not just about individual issues like that, but the power structure of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. Israel was controlled by the Mosaic law. They were supposed to live under it, and they weren't doing it. They weren't doing it at all. And God said, you're not taking care of your own people like you should have. You're, you're using power and wealth to steal from them. And he's not just talking about individually. That was expected, of course, for them to treat others kindly. Treat your neighbor with the kind of love that you would want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. But this is more structures in the kingdom itself. Because they worshipped a false god, they no longer cared about the law of God and wanted to do what they wanted, wanted to take, to steal. Number three, the judgment of Israel and Judah. It's coming. Judgment is coming. If you think about judgment in the Bible, it's really from the very beginning, isn't it? In fact, the warning to Adam and Eve is a warning of judgment. If they take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be punished. And all the way till the end of the Bible, right before the end of Revelation, all the way through Revelation 20, judgment is a theme. But these little prophets are warning. They're warning about the destruction that's coming. God is so gracious, he gives them hundreds of years warning, sometimes 300 years ahead of time. He sends a prophet to tell them what's going to happen if they don't repent. Then, of course, God is merciful. He's gracious, so there's a restoration. And there's also a judgment of the other nations. See, it's not just Israel and Judah. There are other nations. There are other nations. And some of these minor prophets are just focused on those other nations. They're not getting away scot-free. If God's people, God's own chosen people are going to be punished, then so are the ones who don't even love God or know him. One good resource that covers them all is this one by Charles Feinberg. Charles Feinberg was the uh, professor who taught John MacArthur in seminary. He was a Jewish rabbi converted to Christianity and then became a professor at Talbot Seminary. Feinberg has this great little commentary. It covers sections on every, it has sections on every of uh, one of the minor prophets. So sometimes when we don't have a good commentary for one of the prophets, you just go to Feinberg. He's always pretty good. So that's a good resource to have. It's not real geeky. It's not 
just for Hebrew scholars like Frank. I think it was Bible studies that he did maybe in his church or wrote for a magazine. All right, the one interpretive issue that comes up in every book. What is the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? Some Christians disagree on what this means. A, the day of Yahweh's future judgment and blessing. So A is saying everything, the tribulation and the millennium. Pretty much everything from when the end times start with the tribulation all the way through the end of the millennium. And 2 Peter 3.10 does seem to indicate this in its use of the day of the Lord. If we look at that in the New Testament here. So I, I don't think this is what the minor prophets are talking about, but we can certainly see how at least Peter uses it this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the only time that's happening is at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Christ finally uh, defeats Satan. Remember, Satan's bound for a thousand years, it says in Revelation 20. Then he's released for a time. He gathers up some people. They fight one last battle. And then Christ defeats them, throws them in to the fiery furnace, Gehenna, hell, lake of fire, forever and ever. And then the earth is remade. So that's what Peter's talking about. So he's, he's going all the way from the tribulation all the way until the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, but the minor prophets more speak of God's judgment, not just the restoration included like Peter, but, but the judgment, the tribulation, the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth. Not, not the wrath of eternal punishment, that's in the Bible, but the wrath that's coming upon the earth. And so we have to ask, okay, if, if that's God's judgment, then is it, is it happening as the prophets write, has it already happened? Is it about to happen? Or is it something far into the future? The great tribulation that we might say, the great tribulation that Jesus speaks of. So just the tribulation would be number two. And both during the time of the prophets that's coming with Assyria and, and Babylon taking Israel and Judah away. And then also something in the future. Because remember when the prophets looked out like Isaiah, they just saw the mountain peaks, just the mountain peaks. Which mountain peak is closest? Can't tell. They just see mountain peaks. But I think it is number two. The future eschatological. Eschatological means in times. Not the near judgment that's coming. There's certainly that. There's certainly a warning of repentance before Assyria comes, before Babylon comes. That's in these books. But when they talk about the day of the Lord, you'll see that the context is stars and the moon falling out of the sky. You'll see that catastrophic things are happening in the cosmic order of, of things that God has put in place. So this is the great tribulation. Any questions on that? Everybody's got them all? Okay, let's get in. Hosea. Hosea. Hosea is an interesting book. If you haven't read it, you need to. You need to read the book of Hosea because it is a great picture of God's love for his people. So it's written by the prophet Hosea. You'll see that in verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Barry, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it tells us when he wrote this, when he lived. During the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So the dating, 9th or 8th century B.C. So these kings stretch a long period of time, and we don't know exactly the, the exact year. Sometimes we do in the prophets. We know, for example, when... Jeremiah probably wrote. 
we can narrow down for Ezekiel. That's about as close as we can get for Hosea. We know that he's writing to Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, they split after Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he has the whole kingdom. Some people come from the north and they say, your father treated us like slaves. Can you lighten the burden? And he says, you know, my, my little finger is bigger than my father's loins. Get out of here, you scoundrels. What do they do? They rebel. And God had already providentially raised up this man named Jeroboam to become king of those northern ten tribes. They split off. They become known as Israel. Now, Israel's not going to be destroyed until the late 700 B.C. So God is warning them well in advance. God is sending this message to warn them within a hundred years of their destruction. And the theme is loyal love, that God is faithful, that God has a covenant with him. He made a covenant with their fathers, and he is faithful. He is loving. Even though they've abandoned him, he hasn't abandoned them. So why is it in our Bibles? To remind us that though Israel was unfaithful, the always faithful love will prevail. It's a good reminder for us, even when we're unfaithful at times. God will be faithful to us. This would be the date that it was written. I mean, that's, that's a big span, so we can't say for certain. Did he start in the days of Uzziah and finish in the days of Hezekiah? Did he write it all after Hezekiah? So this is a rough span. So what's the outline? It basically breaks down into two parts. One through three is really about Hosea himself. Hosea's own marriage. He had an adulterous wife, and he was faithful. He had a wife that abandoned him into promiscuity, and he was faithful to her. And that's a picture of God and Israel. So the rest of the book is no longer about Hosea himself, but about adulterous Israel and the faithful Lord. So just look at 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. And have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. When Israel abandons their God, the true God, and turns to other gods, that's adultery. That's idolatry, and God speaks of it in the way of adultery. Just like a, a woman would turn away from her husband and pursue other men, that's what Israel had done. And so he's, he's saying, show them by going and marrying a harlot. So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. Forget a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. So even the children's names are to teach Israel something. And then the other names get really interesting. Verse 6, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, this is verse 6, The Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah. I mean, we're getting all kinds of names for kids, right? You guys who are still having kids, right? You're going to get to name them Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. That's what the name means, no longer having compassion. That I would ever forgive them. And then verse 8, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. That's what the name means, not my people. And I am not your God. How would you like for God to, to name? You don't get to say Zane. 
but it's uh, not my people. All one word. She wouldn't be happy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that Hosea was extremely happy either, right? People are going to go around calling his son, not my people, not my people. But, but God said it, so, so what do you do? Chapter 4, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. So now he's going to speak directly to Israel through this prophet here. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. So often the prophets, they're legal prosecutors. They're bringing a case to the court against Israel. Why? Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. They don't worship God like they should. They're not faithful. There's no kindness. They don't treat one another like they should. And they don't even know God anymore. There's a famine in the land. The word's not preached. People don't teach the Bible anymore. It's just complete rebellion. In fact, the first king of Israel, the first king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam, put up a false image and had the people worship a false god. They thought it was the one true God, but he really didn't want, it was political. He didn't want them to go down to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem and worship. They have to go worship the Lord. Hey, let's just set up an altar. Let's just set up an idol. And they can call that thing God and say that that's the worship of God. And we'll even get some priests to come up and help make this official. And so that's what we see in those last 10 or 11 chapters. Key chapters on their beginning, because it's the picture of what's happening there. Uh, Gomer is restored to Hosea. Look at chapter 3. So he marries a woman of harlotry. She runs away. Then the Lord said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin cakes would be a special cake that they made for these false gods, an offering. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. She's run off and sold herself into prostitution, probably. Sold herself into harlotry. So not only is she an adulteress, not only does he have three children by her, God says, go after her. She's run off. She sold herself. Go after her and buy her back. He has to pay for her. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. And here's the comparison. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or house of idols. So just like the wife is going to remain faithful to Hosea, Israel is going to be without another man. They're going to be without their false gods for a time. They're going to have to trust in the Lord because judgment's coming. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God. So here's a picture of restoration coming. Israel's going to come back and seek their God and David, their king. Well, David's been dead a long time, so that's pointing to the Messiah there. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So there's hope. Key people, Hosea, he's the husband. He's the picture of loyal love that God has for Israel. Gomer's his wife. Another great name, right? Gomer. Wasn't that a character in, what was that show that used to come on? Barney Fife? What was that? Gomer Pyle, yeah. Did they get that? I wonder if they got that name from, from the Bible here. No one else in history has probably been named Gomer, right? No one named their kids. Y'all don't know anybody named Gomer? Just Gomer Pyle. All right, so Gomer's the wife. She's a, uh, in picture, really, of spiritual adultery of Israel. Jezreel's the first child. 
It has to do with the judgment that's coming on the kingdom of Jehu. The king at that time that he's born is Jehu. He'll be judged. He'll be judged. And then Lo-Ruhamah. Lo in Hebrew means not. So the daughter is named Lo-Ruhamah. Not pitied. Not um, having any compassion. That picture is God's withdrawal of love and mercy. And Lo-Ami, not my people. Which pictures a broken relationship. So we have a real life family here where each member of the family pictures something that's really going on with Israel and God. Key passages, let's look at 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is God speaking to them. They have no knowledge of God. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Israel, the whole, the whole nation, all the Jews were meant to be a nation that, that focused as being a priest to the other nations. They were supposed to point people to God. People were supposed to come and see Israel's different. And they had rejected God. And they had rejected any knowledge, really, any truth about him. And so God's going to reject them for a time. Of course, ultimately, his loyal love will, will be seen. But for a time, they're going to be punished. So chapter 6, verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't care as much about our going through the motions, of course, if we don't love him. What does that matter? God doesn't care about that. Going, oh, I went to church. Oh, I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I'm a good Christian. God's got to love me for that. That's backwards. We love God, and so then we do those things because he's commanded us. He's saying, that commitment to him is what he desires. He desires loyalty rather than sacrifice. Yes, he called them to sacrifice, but they're supposed to love him from their heart. And then 11.1 1 is quoted in the New Testament. That's one of our interpretive issues. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So that's a, an interpretive issue. It's going to be quoted in Matthew 2.15. A couple of good uh, commentaries. I've already mentioned Feinberg, the Minor Prophets. Uh, a little bit more in-depth is the New American Commentary by Dwayne Garrett. I recommend him for Hosea, not for Joel. For Joel, he he's a little off theologically, but, but Hosea is good. So if you needed something more in-depth, Dwayne Garrett. Interpretive issues. There's, I think, four of these for Hosea. We're going to go pretty quick through these. I think they're pretty easy to figure out. Gomer, is that a real person or not? Seems to indicate that it is, of course. The, what's the problem? Why, why don't people want to believe that Gomer is a real person? Because God's telling his prophet to go marry a prostitute or somebody who's going to become promiscuous. Those are some of the options there at the bottom, if we take it literal. It's, it's a promiscuous woman, an adulteress, an adulteress. So people have problems with that, particularly when you come to the Bible thinking that all the people in the Bible are supposed to be good examples and holy and godly and never... Uh, never doing anything wrong. And we don't get the sense that Hosea is sinning. It says that the priest, the priest should marry a wife that's pure and from their own tribe of Levi. doesn't really say anything else. Now, normally a man would not choose an adulteress to marry, but I think that's the point. Normally, God doesn't just go out and save nations. He chose one nation. I think she was already promiscuous because he says, go and marry a woman of harlotry. She's already that way. How does he even know what a woman of harlotry looks like if it's somebody later, right? Somebody, let's say the whole idea was, that's number three here. The whole idea is that later when they're married, then she's going to come 
become uh, promiscuous? How would he even pick her out? How would he even know what she looks like? He's going to a place where he knows there's prostitutes and he's choosing one to marry or the one that God is directing him to. She's already like that. Why? Because when this book is written, Israel's already unfaithful to God. That's the point. That's the picture. That God loved them even though they were already rejecting him. Even in Egypt when God saved them, they didn't really want to follow him. As soon as they got the chance, they created a golden calf in the wilderness. So who's the woman then in three one? Is this somebody different? Uh, some people might think, well, this is a different woman because he doesn't call her by name. He just says, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. But I think the again clues us in. There's no reason to think it's somebody else. If it was somebody else, that person should be introduced in the text as somebody else. So just taking it literally in context, this is going to be Gomer. She's run off. She's gone back into her adultery, and he's got to go redeem her, which is a picture of God. He's so faithful, he keeps coming back and saving people, redeeming people. Chapter 6, verse 7. Who is this Adam mentioned here? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Ephraim was another name for the northern kingdom. One of the main tribes there was Ephraim. And so often the main tribe is the one that gets the name. What should I do for you, O Ephraim? Sorry, I'm on uh, verse 4. This is kind of introducing the context. What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes early. Now skip to verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. We just looked at that. Verse 7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. So who is this Adam? Those who follow a, a covenant theology, covenantalism, they're looking for a covenant of works with Adam that God officially gave to Adam. And I would say, yeah, God did give Adam commands. There's no mention of the word covenant with Adam. But they would say, well, here it is right here, 6-7. Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Israel had a covenant under Moses, and they broke it. And they would say, this is a personal name, Adam, here. Therefore, Adam must have had a covenant, an official covenant with God. Well, a couple of problems. One is, it doesn't make sense in context that this would be the person, Adam. It's kind of weird how he's talking about Israel. He's, he's using all these names for them and talking about Judah. And then suddenly... He starts talking about Adam the person and then goes back in verse 8 to talk about a city, Gilead. Talk about all that's going on in Judah down in verse 11, verse 10, the house of Israel. Only one commentary that I know of uh, takes this as Adam. And I think when that commentary was updated, they changed their view. The rest of them go with C. Um, some people think it's just Adam in general, mankind. Sometimes Adam in the Bible is, is mankind, but it's, it's a place name. And you might say, well, where, where is a town named Adam? Joshua 3.16. So let's get some readers for these. Um, Frank, Joshua 3.16. Autumn, Deuteronomy 29.23. We have this town called Adma. So in Hebrew, the, the name, the word here is Adam. Adam could be another slightly different name to this city, Adma. Or it could be the town named Adam in, in Joshua. Uh, Forest, Hosea 11.8. So just a few chapters past where we're at here. So it could be a town named Adam, Joshua 3.16. There's a town, Frank. There's a town, though there's not really any kind of uh, covenant agreement 
being made there. So we don't really know where the comparison is. We assume they would understand it in Hosea's day. And then there's also a town or city named Adma that was destroyed when um, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Deuteronomy 29, Hosea 11.8. So I would go with Adma just because it's mentioned later in Hosea. And Zeboim was another one of these cities. They're kind of suburbs that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have Sodom and Gomorrah, those are the big cities, and then they have suburbs or little towns around it. And if you read the account in Genesis, it says all the towns around it were destroyed as well. And so just trying to put some things together in the Bible, I would say that God is referring to the covenant under Noah, the covenant that they should not take another man's blood, the covenant that they should not go out and kill and murder like these cities were. They were known for their ruthlessness, for their homosexuality, for all the evil that was going on in that region. And so God punished them. They transgressed against the covenant with Noah, which was don't take another man's life or your life will be taken. And then they were wiped out. And so like that, God is about to wipe out Israel and Judah because they've transgressed against a Mosaic covenant, which is even more specific on what not to do and how to please God. So I don't think this is a uh, covenant of works with Adam. And the last one, probably the hardest one, and we don't even have time to go into it because that would take days. If you look up Abner Chow, he has some good papers that he wrote on it. I think Greg Beale, I think it was, did a, at the Inerrancy Summit for the Shepherds Conference a few years ago, he did a whole sermon, Lerman lecture. It was really just a lecture. Yeah, you can go and watch that, have fun trying to understand half of what he's saying because he's very nerdy. But uh, he does go into this, this concept. I'm not even sure what he's saying half the time. But I think Abner Chow makes a little more sense when he talks about this. So what's the issue here? Well, the issue is, who is Hosea talking about when he says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, normally we would just say that's Israel, right? Exodus 4.22. Exodus 4.22. Debbie, can you look up the Matthew 2.15? So in Exodus, Israel is called specifically my son. And God brought them out of Egypt. That's what Exodus is about. So then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is Moses, uh, should go to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And then Matthew 2.15 kind of uh, throws a kink into that whole idea of what Hosea is saying here. So Israel is God's son in Exodus. And Hosea is saying out of Egypt, God called his son Israel. But then Matthew says, when Jesus and his family went down to Egypt when he was little, they waited to come back when Herod had died. And that's that coming back to Judah, coming back to Israel, is to fulfill what Hosea said in 11.1, 1, that this Messiah is my son. Which we would say, amen. The question is then, how do we focus on Hosea? And you may not realize if this becomes kind of an interpretive crux, one of those verses that people argue over, especially when uh, people are trying to insert Christ into places in the Old Testament where he's not. So they'll try to say, look, every verse, every word is actually talking about Jesus. David and Goliath, it's not David, Jesus. Goliath is, you know, Satan. Of course, we know that it is David and they would say it is. But they're saying that Christ is always being pictured in the Old Testament. Well, we know the whole Old Testament points to Christ, but does every single verse point to Christ? Does every single verse specifically talk about Christ? No. All of it's pointing that direction. Like Spurgeon said, every road 
that you get on will eventually lead you to London. Every road that you get on in the Old Testament eventually leads you to Christ. But back to Hosea, what specifically is he talking about? Well, I think Matthew, and Abner Chow makes this argument really well. He says, Matthew knew his Old Testament. Matthew's not confused. Matthew's not taking something out of context. Matthew is saying that Hosea was pointing back to the Exodus. And Moses brought the people out. Moses brought my son out of Egypt. And now Matthew's saying, Hosea also saw in the future that there would be another one, another Moses, that would rescue his people out of bondage, out of slavery. That's the Messiah. So I'm going with B, Hosea 3, 5, kind of points us in that direction as well. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. David's been dead. He's been dead a long time. What does this mean they're going to seek David? Well, we know when they're seeking David, their king is talking about the coming David, the Messiah. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Hosea knows there's another one coming, greater than Moses, greater than David. He just doesn't make it super explicit in chapter 11, but Matthew clarifies it. Matthew's not changing what Hosea said. That's what some people say. Well, the apostles reread Christ in the, in the Old Testament. They added some interpretation that wasn't there. Now, Hosea knows what he's doing. Matthew knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He's saying, look, Hosea understood there's one coming in the future. Greater than Moses, greater than David. Any questions on Hosea? It's a great book. Read it. Joel, the book of Joel, the prophets. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen to all, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping. And he just goes on with this plague of locusts that has come into the land. A historical, real plague of locusts. They've eaten everything. There's famine. There's problems in the land because of these locusts. And God is saying through his prophet, listen up. This was meant for a purpose. This was to wake you up. Has anything ever happened like this? Has it ever been this bad before? Verse 8, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The people can't go up and offer sacrifices because the grain's gone. Which means the priests are going to be hungry because where do they get their food? Part of the sacrifices. So everybody's hungry in the land. That's supposed to wake them up. So Joel, when was this written? Same time as Hosea, 9th and 8th century BC. The difference is it's written to Judah, the southern kingdom the south, they're going to be punished as well. Now, they're not going to be taken into captivity into Babylon until, who knows the date for that? 605 is when the first group gets taken into exile. And then the city's destroyed in 586. So we're talking 200 or more years ahead of that. God is already warning his people. It's like today. We've had 2,000 years of warning. Almost 2,000 years ago. We could say a little less for the book of Revelation. It's not as if people don't have enough time to see the truth. 
It's not as if, you know, you came back and judged the earth, God, before anybody knew what was going on. Hundreds of years before the city would be destroyed. What's the theme? Well, there's a theme in all the books called the day of the Lord. But Joel is all about the coming wrath of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. So why is it in the Bible? Well, it's to warn us. It's Yahweh's warning of divine judgment that's coming on Judah and the nations around Judah and all over the world in the coming day of the Lord. So Judah thought they were the better of the two brothers. You've got the the northern kingdom. They're wicked right away. They start worshiping false idols. In the south, though, they had Jerusalem. They had the temple. They had some good kings, some kind of okay kings, lots of bad kings. The north only had bad kings, and they were worshiping idols from day one. So Judah thought they were fine. God would protect them. You saw in Jeremiah when we studied that book that people were saying, this is God's holy city. He'll never destroy it. And Joel is saying, look at what just happened with these locusts. There's something bigger coming. There's a greater judgment than these locusts coming. So we have three points outline. Day of the Lord in retrospect, looking back. Day of the Lord in, in prospect, looking forward. And there's even some debate about chapter two we'll get to. And then eschatological. I, I like the second outline better. Chapter one's historical. The plague of locusts that already happened. Everything after two is telling us about what's coming in the future. Transitional. Y'all have the same look? Or is, is number three supposed to be over there? You guys got Y'all just have that one? Okay. The outline over here didn't get finished. You see, I think this uh, 218, number three, eschatological is supposed to be over here on the simpler outline. That's all right. My fault on that. Try to fix my problems, huh? All right. So number three should be over there. I just like this one on the right a little better because I think chapter two is looking forward, not looking back. And the day of the Lord in prospect, meaning in the future, starts at 2.18. And I think we're starting at 2.1 with the future. So key passages, 2.28. Let's look at that, 2.28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. When's that? When does that happen? Where's this quote in the New Testament? Name a book. Acts. Acts at Pentecost. And they say, look. The apostles say, this is a fulfillment of Joel. And it is. Those two verses. But we have more to go in this coming day. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That has not happened yet. The sun has not been turned into darkness. We've not seen wonders in the sky. The moon's not been turned to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is God's coming wrath upon the earth. That's not happened yet. So really what the apostles were saying in Acts is, this is exactly what Joel was talking about. It's like that. It's not the exact thing because that's coming at the very end. But it's just like that. God's already starting the last days with his spirit being poured out on all mankind. 3.9, he goes into a description of judgment of the nations in the valley of decision, the valley of Armageddon, or Hebrews, Armageddon, Har being mountain. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, 
your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Skip over to 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The decision is not people show up and decide who they're going to fight for. It's a decision of the battle will be decided. It will be decided right there. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So when this valley comes, this decision, I mean, this battle comes in this valley of decision, that's when the day of the Lord is going to have its final conclusion. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord coming. Commentaries. We have a master seminary professor here that uh, Frank had for Hebrew. Irv Busnitz wrote a commentary in the Mentor Old Testament Commentary Series. Joel and Obadiah, Dr. Busnitz. He was my dean of academics, I guess, when I was there. But Frank had him for Hebrew. He's retired now. And then, of course, we're back to Feinberg if you want sort of a summary fashion. Feinberg's not super short, but he's shorter than a whole commentary would be. But then again, I'm going to disagree with Busnitz right here on this one. What is the attack in 2.11? Is it another plague of locusts that came? So chapter 1's real locusts. Chapter 2, well, it sounds kind of like the locusts. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Well, locusts doesn't really fit with the day of the Lord. Now, that's wrath on the whole earth. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there's a great mighty people. Doesn't sound like a locust. Now, it could be figurative language for locusts. They look like an army marching over the horizon. There's never been anything like it. Well, he kind of said that about the locusts in chapter 1. Nor will there be again after it to the year of many generations. A fire consumes before them, behind them a flame burns. And he goes on all throughout chapter 2 describing this. And then at 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. And will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, oil. You'll be satisfied. So this attack will be over and there's going to be blessing. So is this another plague of locusts or is this a human army? Well, I think the description is more of people. It's talking about mighty people. It's talking about in um, eight. They do not crowd each other. They march. Nine is they're coming upon the city, the wall. They're attacking houses all throughout. But 220 helps us as well. But I will remove the northern army. Armies in italics because it's been supplied by the translators. They, They take B, a human army. Most translations, I think. Does any translation say something different? You could have an army of locusts, I guess. But... The key is they're from the north. And if you know anything about the climate, geography, and things in Israel, the locusts come up from the south. They come up from Egypt. They come up from the desert. Locusts never came from the north. Who comes from the north, though? Assyria? Babylon? All the armies that end up attacking Israel. And so he's writing to Judah. Often Babylon is called the army that comes from the north. So I'm going with B. A human army, uh, mainly based on 220, but I think 2, 1 through 11, all those verses are describing an actual army that's going to attack in the end times, not just Babylon in the near future, but the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of God's wrath. This is the tribulation. 
This is the army that marches upon the city of Jerusalem at the very end before Christ returns and defeats them all. Any questions on Joel? All right, Amos. I told you we were going fast. We can't do four classes like we did on Daniel, right? But Daniel had ten interpretive problems. These have a few, but they're pretty quick to read. They're short. Okay, Amos, same time frame, 9th, 8th century B.C. Now we're back to the northern kingdom, Israel. So when you read your Bible and it says Israel, you have to know where you're at. If you're Solomon or before, Israel's the whole country, the whole nation. After Solomon, Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Always remember that. So when you get to this, you're not confused on that. The theme is social injustice of Israel. They had done wrong. First, they chased other gods and they forgot the God who had saved them out of Egypt. Because of that, they don't care about God's law and they treat each other unkindly, very unkindly. They kill, they murder, they take, they steal, they hurt, they persecute. In fact, because of that language, who took verses from the book of Amos and used them in the civil rights era? Martin Luther King Jr. He took these verses and he preached them as if God was speaking to America. We won't go into how I think some of that's out of context because we only have eight minutes. But I think he did I think he did take them out of context. He was using them for his own purposes there. The purpose, why is this in the Bible? Yahweh would not turn back from judging Israel, even though they had not treated each other rightly, even though they had broken the law. He's still going to judge them. Yes, he will restore them. Yes, he will restore them. But he's going to judge them. He's going to bring judgment upon them. They're not going to escape. He's not going to turn back from that judgment. So we have four-point outline. There's eight prophecies and one through two, chapters one and two. Then he gives three sermons on how they have provoked this judgment. They provoked God. Then he gives five visions of punishment and then five promises on the restoration of Israel. Judgment's coming. There's nothing they can do about it. But God's loving. God's kind. He will He will restore them. He will bring them back into the land. But that's at the very end of the book. Only the last few verses. Again, God is kind. He's giving them a warning ahead of time. Much like Jesus warned us what would come. So 9-11, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. I'm going to talk about that as an interpretive issue. Because that's quoted in what book of the New Testament? What book of the New Testament, Liesl? You say the same one you said earlier. Acts. It's quoted in Acts. In that day they will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So we're talking end times here. Messiah's coming. He's going to reign. He's the house of David, the booth of David that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. So there's going to be a reign with the house of David over all the nations that call upon the Lord, which when Christ returns, that's going to be eventually all the nations. So Israel is going to be restored. And from Israel, one from David will reign over the whole earth. Also 9.8, we're looking at key passages here, 9.8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. 
Even though the northern kingdom will be taken away into Assyria, not every single person from the ten tribes will be destroyed. What happens to them? Where do they go? That's sort of a... You, you can make a lot of money if you write a book and suggest where they went. Some people say they went to Britain. And they started, you know, godly people in the island of Britain. There's a whole book on that. Others, you know, might say, the Mormons might say they came to America. The ten tribes came to America and settled. And then Jesus came over. That's Mormon theology. We don't have to go too wild with our speculations. If your home's getting attacked, let's, let's not say Texas. Let's say you live in uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma's getting attacked. Where are you going to go? Texas, right? Where else would you go? It's the best place to be, right? So you go to Texas. You're a believer. You're a part of the remnant. The northern kingdom is your home. That's where your family's always been. You don't like it. You don't like the president. I mean, the, the king. And you're going to move, but you don't really want to move. So you're going to wait until the place is destroyed. And then you're getting out of Dodge and going south to Judah. So they just went to Judah. Not so many that it changed the whole nation, but enough so that God's all 12 tribes would have descendants. 9.13, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and living them. They will plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens. So he's talking about blessing, future hope. No good commentaries for this book yet. Maybe Frank will write one someday as he advances in Hebrew. There are commentaries out there that will help you with certain things, but most of them are going to take these verses about the end times and, and do something else with it and not be as clear on them pointing to the end times. So Feinberg has a good section in his book on all the minor prophets. Okay, the Tabernacle of David, 9-11. I just read the booth. The, the actual word is tabernacle. And who is this or what is this? Now, those who think that the church has replaced Israel say it's the church. And they will raise up the fallen booth of David. In fact, it's in Acts. The apostles quoted it. So they must be referring to the church. Second option is the Messiah in the kingdom. And then some would say this is the city of Jerusalem being restored. I think it's the Messiah in the kingdom. Not yet. In the kingdom. The booth or the tent or the tabernacle of David represents his household. God made a covenant with David. God said, there will always be a descendant upon the throne. And he's speaking of the Messiah. Everlasting descendant upon the throne. The actual throne, which is the throne upon the earth, which rules over the nation of Israel. And many passages say over the whole earth, like this one, verse 12. All the nations who call me by my name. Isaiah 16.5 gives us some language similar to this. There's lots. I just quoted this one. A throne will be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Tent, tabernacle, same thing. So this judge, this ruler is going to sit in faithfulness as a judge, and he's going to be in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. The Messiah, he's coming. He will reign upon the earth in David's throne, in David's kingdom. The whole earth, though, much more than David ever ruled over. I don't think it's the church. Maybe when we do the New Testament survey, we can talk about what's going on at the Council of Jerusalem, why they quote this verse. But I think they're saying, I'll just give you my quick summary. They're saying, remember in um, Amos, 
where it says the Messiah is coming, the, the booth of David will be rebuilt, will be raised up, and all the nations of the earth? Well, these Gentiles are being saved just like us. Let's not make them obey the law. These are exactly the things we would expect based on the prophets like Amos. And so it's kind of like the one in Joel. They're saying this is like that. They're not saying the church replaces Israel and this promise no longer applies to them. They're saying, oh yeah, it seems like the prophet said something about this. All right, any questions? You guys got it all down? Just say the book of Acts, right? If I ask what, what New Testament book is this quoted? Although we had one in Matthew. So, so far, all three of the minor prophets have been quoted in the New Testament that we've covered. These are important. These are not just little books that if you have time at the end of your Bible reading plan, you'll get to it. You've got to read the whole Old Testament, even those little minor prophets at the end. They're only minor to us because of their size. But many Jews thought of them as one whole book. All 12 made up a book. And they were just as important as the other prophets. In fact, there's a lot of Christ. There's a lot of the Messiah in these minor prophets. And especially when we get to books like Zechariah. Okay, next week, three more. We've got three more weeks in Old Testament survey. And we'll be off for two weeks during Christmas break. So on the 20th and the 27th, there'll be no equipping class. Just to let you know ahead of time. You can come early and pray and fellowship, but we're not having class those days. And then we'll have a new class, a completely new class starting in January. So that's going to be on the attributes of God. Right, Frank? Frank's going to teach all the attributes of God, all that he knows on them in the spring semester of equipping class. So three more weeks of Old Testament survey. Don't miss it. It's going to be really good by the time we get to the end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our study today, our quick survey. Remind us of these things when we're reading these books. Help us to focus on the Messiah who is to come. Let us think of what the Jews thought of. They were looking for the first coming and and now we're looking for the second coming. But let's have that expectation, that hope, that confidence. Because we know so much more after the New Testament. And, and help us to look forward to seeing our Lord. We ask that you would remind us of this regularly. In the name of Christ, amen.